The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hidden Horsepower is back once again, presented by Total Seal Piston Rings. Hi, everybody. I'm Joe Costello. We're once again joined by the Director of Technical Sales for Total Seal, Mr. Keith Jones. Keith, another episode. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself today, Joe? I'm great. I'm great. I'm loving these episodes. We get down in the year. Winter is coming. Everybody is finishing their seasons, all kinds of different implications and points and points championships. And we want to pump out some podcasts for people that are on their way to PRI or the holidays or who knows, maybe they're getting ready for 2022, but we got to pump out that content. And that's exactly what we're doing today. I am very excited because we have got a special guest, Gary Stinnett, Gary Stinnett Racing Engines in Poria, Kansas. This guy is a four-time Super Comp World Champ in the NHRA. He was a crew guy for Warren Johnson. He's won the U.S. Nationals uh, 30 years in the business. It is going to be awesome. How about you? Uh, I just, you know, I am so pleased that Gary could get on here. Gary's not only a great longtime customer of Total Seal Piston Rings, he's a friend. Uh, he and I have broken bread many times, told many war stories, uh, sat around the, you know, the same dinner table with, the, with other racers and just had a great time. I, I am so very pleased uh, to have Gary on here to take his time out of his very, very busy day and very, very busy racing schedule uh, to, you know, to slot a little bit of time out of there for us. I, I appreciate it more than I could possibly tell him. Uh, and, and again, you know, for those of you that don't know Gary, uh, this, this guy is just such a consummate builder, record keeper, logbook, data, knows the math. Uh, you know, what more can I say? He, he's an engine builder's engine builder. And the dot .90 style of racing that happens in the NHRA, my opinion is that it is misunderstood by many other racers out there how challenging, complex, difficult it can be. And so I'm super excited to speak with Gary about that and find out, honestly, can you build an engine for that style of racing, or are you just trying to make as much power as is possible? Uh, before we bring him on, though, before we bring him on, just the idea of uh, a four-time world champion who is also building his own engines, who is competing and racing himself at the same time, that doesn't always happen all the time, uh, Keith. We, we find a lot of the guys who are engine builders, they want to or feel the need to give up the wheel to go focus on the engine shop. Gary hasn't done that. He's out there banging his head against the wall very often. Yeah, absolutely, positively. I, Gary's one of these guys, and, and he'll be able to speak for himself, but you know, if it came down to one or the other, you know, you're going to build engines or you're going racing, we'll just say, I know the answer to that question because Gary is the consummate racer. Uh, he is, you know, uh, again, takes what he knows. I mean, you know, what, a, what a perspective he's got, both sides of it, not only building engines, making power, building that reliability, but he knows what it takes to make that package go down the racetrack and go rounds and win races. So what, you know, what better perspective or advantage could a guy have than knowing both sides of that coin? There you have it. For those of you out there, click uh, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It's going to get better from here. Joining us now from Gary Stennett Racing Engines, aforementioned four-time world champion, Mr. Gary Stennett. Gary, welcome to Hidden Horsepower. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, guys. So what's the answer? Like, we got to hear it from you, though. Racing or building engines in an engine shop, if you got to pick one or the other. Oh, I'd rather race full-time like everybody would 
but you got to make a living somehow, and racing doesn't always pay the bills. Yes, but sometimes it does. For you, you've had a very successful career, uh, and just like ticking off all of those different things, more than 25 NHRA national event wins. Your customers have won more than 17 national championships. You've got a very strong racing resume in uh, all forms of racing, not just the National Hot Rod Association. Like any of those stats would be, uh, a lot of people would be happy with those. Yeah, I've been very fortunate in my career um, from winning races to uh, getting great customers, working with great manufacturers such as Keith and the guys at Total Seal and Matt. I mean, if you, uh, I mean, you've heard this in every kind of sport, but if you surround yourself with uh, successful people, you don't have any choice but to become successful. Wow. And it is actually very, very true. You've won races in stock, super stock, super gas, but super comp is where you've had uh, your world championship success. Why do you think that is? And do you agree with me that dot 90 racing, super comp, super gas, super street, uh, you know, IHRA side of the world, hot rod, quick rod, that style of racing. So many people do it, but outside of the people who actually do it, I feel it is greatly misunderstood and unappreciated for what it is. Sure. It, 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 it really is misunderstood. Um, many of the old timers and, and many of the, the, the guys that start out racing were diehard, you know, first to the finish line. They, they not only don't understand it, but they hate it so much. It goes against the grain of what they started out doing that they don't even want to hear about it or understand it. And so they just are completely tuned out. What's kind of funny now is right now there are a lot of young uh, kids getting, you know, coming out of juniors into racing. And it's pretty cool is that a lot of them are from famous fathers that have been in the, in the pros, such as, you know, uh, uh, Alan Johnson's daughter is starting and, and Robert Height's daughter is starting. And so I've been spending some time with Robert Height in the last, uh, well, I guess I met him at Indy and then uh, he was over at St. Louis and he's absolutely amazed at the amount of technology we have and the things that we do that are so parallel to the exact same thing of running a top fuel car. And that's why, you know, I've been friends with Billy Torrance for many, many years and he's over there meddling in the top fuel, you know, crews and they're trying to get him out of the, trailer look we'll dial the car we'll figure this out but he's wanting to do it like like he does a super comp car that the technology we have is parallel to what they do but they just think we just turn a nut or a bolt and run down there and go 890 and that's all there is to it they don't understand the hours and hours and years i have 30 years worth of data of every kind of uh, wind angle wind speed and you know everything track temperature i've had to study and spend hours reading and researching about um, different weather conditions and situations and why they microclimates and stuff that affects all that so that you can dial this car. Cause we we're a top fuel car or pro stock car is trying to make the perfect run and they're trying to get their clutch dialed into the track tips and all that. We are trying to make the perfect run and we are dealing with thousands of a second. Many of the races that we, that we run or that I've won and or lost are sometimes not just to the thousands, they're down to four zeros. So we are just as serious and just as, and in most cases, as intelligent as the other side of the coin, the other side of the fence. Um, it's just a, a different, unique sport. Very interesting. No, I agree. And the excitement. And the driver has to drive the car. I think of the sprint car driver uh, who makes a last lap pass. 
the super comp racer going down there and making the determination to not take the stripe or you know show the nose that kind of stuff like those millisecond decisions uh, are the equivalent and it's a pretty cool thing to watch but let's start at the very beginning I always like to get the story about young Gary and how this happened to you how did you get this affliction for engines for mechanics for working on cars for going fast how did that all happen well like most people my dad raced so I went to my first drag race at six weeks old um what I actually, this is a neat sidebar, is that my parents actually met at the 1955 uh, U.S. Nationals at Great Bend, Kansas. My uh, dad went there to watch this big event that was happening, and my mom rode with her brother and his new Corvette, and they met. And so my parents were m- met at a drag race, and then I was born in 62. And uh, my dad had about every kind of race car that you could have. He seemed to not be able to make up his mind. Um one of his first cars was a 55 Chevy with a straight axle, an E-gas. You know, the headers came out over top of the front tires and all that. Wow. And there was a young man that drove it. He was only 17, 18 years old. Uh, I think his name was Alan Patterson and uh, from Augusta, Kansas. That's where my, my father grew up, and that's where my grandparents lived. So Alan and my dad were partners in um, 62 or 3, somewhere in there. And uh, my dad had the car, and Alan had the engine. So... From that, from from my childhood years, um, the Patterson family and my family were were you know best of friends. Barbara Patterson babysat me. My mom worked, and uh, you know, so I grew up around the Pattersons and was always inspired when I saw Alan quit his job at the airplane factory in Wichita to start his own racing business. And when I was 13, my parents divorced, and my dad moved to California, so he could be around racing more. But I'm stuck back here in Kansas, so I hitched a ride to to the races every week with whoever I could go with, and uh, you know, so I again around Alan Patterson went with him. I went with a guy named Smitty, John Smith, that passed away a little while ago. My good friend Dick Ross here in town. Um, so I was going to the races as a teenager, doing whatever I could do, and I ended up getting a job um, when I was 18 out of school with Norman Palmer, uh, two-time Comp Eliminator World Champion. Um, and sadly enough, every time somebody brings up my name and my career, they always bring up the Warren Johnson thing. But actually, Norman Palmer and uh, another guy, an NHRA racer, Billy Graham, I worked for both of them at the same time I had to make ends meet. And Billy Graham had started his machine shop called Performance Machine. So I'm in there learning the business, hot tanking the engines, taking them apart. We're doing valve jobs. So I'm in the machine shop there. And then I'm working for Norman Palmer going racing with his uh, – th- this had been in 1981 – He'd won the world championship in 80 at Ontario Motor Speedway, and I was there helping him as a crew guy. I made $100 a week working for him then, <laughs> and uh, and I, I worked for him. And then um, finally I'm, I moved back to Emporia in 82. By 83, I started my own machine shop called Midwest Machine Shop. Um, I'm I'm pretty young. I mean, I'm only uh, 21 years old, but I, I started a machine shop, and uh, a friend of mine built the shop that we're still in today, 30 by 60 front building. We've added on now it's 60 by 60 in the back and 30 by 60 in the front. But um, I ran Midwest Machine Shop for a couple, three years and then got the opportunity to go to work for WJ in 86. So I sold the shop, or its contents anyway, and and uh, moved on to Atlanta. I worked for him for one year. And part of the reason that he hired me was I had a CDL license. I'd worked in machine shops. I'd grown up around racing. 
But in 1974, I think, or maybe 73, uh, my dad had a pro stock Vega, and uh, it wasn't NHRA competitive, but in it, they, everybody around here ran HRA. So they had a big pro stock meet at Kansas City, and I'll never forget this because um, every, all the Vegas, it was almost all Vegas, a couple Camaros, Delon Joseph, a couple other cars, but every Vega was running like high nines, nine nineties, like Warren rolls in with a big block. All the other cars were small blocks, 331s. He comes in with his big block, D stroke, so 348. He had a Linko, nobody else. They had Borg Warner Super 210s. And he laid down some like 917 to 920s, <laughs> right? So my dad somehow managed to win all the rounds, and we had to run Warren Johnson in the final. It wasn't even close, but I still have photos of that day. Warren Johnson um, with the wheels up leaving going down a track and he's in a he's in a short sleeve shirt plaid shirt with a pocket no driving jacket <laughs> open face helmet <laughs> <laughs> but and there's pictures that day of kurt standing there who's a year younger than me arlene's putting gas in the back of that vega in the stock gas tank location with an army gas can you know it's pretty cool so i had a little bit of a tie into warren when i called about the job and uh you know he gave me a job so back then there was only Kurt and Arlene and me and Warren and um, oh there was a guy named Danny Bittner that did some chassis work in house but there was just the three or four of us going to the races so when you ask what I did there it was a uh, every everything we did everything I mean I drove the truck and set up the awning and unloaded the car and between runs I pulled the Linko out and we took the clutch apart you know I took the front end off and project the car wheels and tires pack the shoots, put everything back together. And when we get home, pull it all back apart, put it on the dyno. And then during the week, I machine blocks. And uh, this is a cool story. And I can tell it now. But at the time, nobody was moving lifter bores around. And nobody was doing any of that stuff. Warren got his blocks from uh, Oldsmobile with no lifter bores. So we moved the lifters over so we could move the port over and we could move the rocker over. So I actually made cam cores manually in a lathe that we sent, made them out of 8620. We sent them then to uh, uh, Harvey Crane to his house, who would carry them in the back door of the shop to grind them. And we didn't have Jessel rockers yet. They were out there, but not for that head. So I made stands out of bars. I mean, I come to work and he said, there's some bar stock still. We're going to make some rocker stands to put Jessel rockers on this thing. I mean, we had, when I started there, he had crane roller rockers. So anyway, we made all that stuff in-house and, and did all that kind of work. So I did a little bit of everything, and including honing blocks. So um, after a year of that, and I met my current wife while I was there, moved back to Kansas in July of 87 and started the business, and I'm still here. Wow. That is amazing. And uh, for you listeners out there who are on the fence about subscribing to Hidden Horsepower— I think you should have just been sold right there uh, by the uh, the great WJ stuff. And, of course, the idea that your parents met at the first ever U.S. Nationals in Great Bend, Kansas. Like, that's a stat I'm going to use on the mic, Gary. Thanks for telling me. Uh, Keith, jump in, here for, yeah. with, jump in here with a question for Gary. Well, where I was going to go with Gary, and it's a question and a comment at the same time. You know, one of the things like Gary just mentioned, you know, honing with, working with Warren and the guys, you know, we've got all this crazy, you know, incredibly, you know, automated equipment out there today that does a fantastic job. But I always go back to the guy that learned 
on a manual machine and had great success on a manual machine is still, you know, that that's light years ahead of what you've got with the automatics. The automatics are great, but, you know, you're standing there punching in numbers, doing the thing. When a guy stands there and learns, looking at the color of the cylinder, listening to the sound of the hone, you know, because there's a sound to it, and then looking at the finished result, uh, the finishes come out. I mean, they just absolutely come out. There's a couple of guys and, and, and as you know, Joe, I've been all over the world checking cylinders, and I've checked some that were you know, very, very good, but there's two people, and, and I'm going to name them both right now. There's a guy here in Phoenix, a guy named Bud Yancer, uh, Manifold and Cylinder Head Development. You know, Bud stands behind a CK-10, and I can look at that cylinder, and I know that it's right. I'll whip out a profilometer, check it, and sure enough, Bud's numbers are right on. The other one's Gary Stinnett. You know, Gary's, you know, used profilometers from us, taking them. We, we thought we had some questions, thought maybe his finishes were off a little bit. Gary's checking them, but, again, we're back to the colors right, the look is right, the experience level that he has is, you know, telling him, hey, I know these are right. And sure enough, bang, they're right on. I mean, so, you know, something, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, working behind those machines and learning, you know, how to grind valves on an old, you know, on an old manual, you know, machine, uh, you know, learning how to do those processes. And when you bring that into the modern equipment, you're just that much further ahead. Uh, the other, you know, now going to more of the question uh, for Gary is, you know, things have changed a lot. There was a time you and I've talked about this a couple times, you know, where everything would come back, you know, 80 runs, 100 runs, and, and you'd see the engine back. And nowadays, I mean, they're coming back, you know, 250 runs, 300 runs, 400, and so on. Uh, you know, I, I just had a guy that runs top dragster. They've got 900 runs on the engine, wants to know if he thinks it ought to be rebuilt by now. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, you may want to get in there and look at it. Uh, looking at that and the ring technologies and how we've moved things forward in materials and coatings, you know, with that stuff in mind, Gary, what kind of changes have you had to make to accommodate, you know, the length of time that's going between the rebuilds these days? Sorry for such a long question. Well, um, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. I want to back up to something, a comment you made. I still hone every block myself on a 1983 CK-10. I do not have there diamond stones. I don't have it automated. Um, I still, it's a manual. I mean, it looks old and it's old and it works great. And I've trained a few guys on it, employees over the years. A couple of them gone and start their own engine building business. And what I told them from the get go, right from the get this, I said, you can be a machine operator or you can be a machinist. And, and that came from WJ. And and I said, the thing about operating one of the, any of these machines, any, any machines, is learning how to, and that's what I call it, drive it. Listen to the machine, drive it, manipulate it. The nice thing about a manual machine is I can save some cylinder walls and save material by different techniques that I've used over the years to cheat, to move it, to do what I needed to do to save that cylinder wall without just punching a block out another 10, 20, 30 over. You know, we can do those things. But as far as whether you have to have a diamond hone or you have to have an automated state-of-the-art great $125,000 machine, you do not. And the proof is this. On, on most of our engines, we get higher vacuum readings in a lot of shops, and we do it without a vacuum pump. My own personal engine, and I, I, I've shown this to you, Keith, at Indy. When I'm warming it up, anybody's welcome to come look. I have a vacuum gauge on the dash. I'll have 22 to 23 inches warming it up. Without a vacuum pump, with just and not a high-end daily or any high-end uh, dry sump pump, it's a Moroso catalog 
five stage dry sump pump. I'll have 22, 23 inches warming the thing up. I still have 19 and a half inches at the finish line. That was honed with vitrified stones in a CK10. It wasn't hot honed, and it's and it's, I used total seal gapless rings in an aluminum block. That's the other. And aluminum blocks are notorious for not having vacuum or not making power. We make as much power with an aluminum block as as we do with an iron. It requires proper honing technique, proper ring, and ring lands. And if you get everything right, you don't have to have that stuff if you have the experience of knowing how to hone. Amen. <laughs> One of the things that I see so much today, and it's exactly what Gary just said, and this is not throwing stones at anybody, but you know, there's the difference, and it's a huge difference between being a machinist and a machine operator. You know, going back to what Gary was saying was like working at WJ's. I mean, okay, here's a hunk of bar stock. Take this jessel that wasn't made for this head and make it fit. Take, you know, 10 sets of puzzles, throw all the pieces and, you know, together and then make it all work out at the end. And that's a true machinist. And these are the guys that, you know, can make anything work, make anything out of something or something into anything. And, and they, they are truly artists. And, you know, the guys like Gary that will take the time, work with, a, you know, an up-and-comer, a new guy in his shop to, again, teach him how to work that machine. You know, the CK-10 is a fantastic machine. You just have to have somebody that's willing to take the time, you know, again, to work with you, you know, to get the look, to get the listen, to get the sound of what that cylinder sounds like when it's honing. And, unfortunately, a lot of, you know, a lot of places just don't want that anymore. That's where the automated have become so very, very popular because they can have a machine operator uh, that they can just stand in front of it and watch it go. And it's a true testament, uh, you know, to guys like Gary that have, you know, taken the time to really, you know, know their trade, you know, know their craft, learn it, and and be able to share that information. That's a rare thing today. To answer your question, Keith, about the longevity of these engines, it, it boils down to, uh, uh, there's a lot. I mean, there's no single answer. You, you know, you you know better than anybody. We have all this different kind of material of cylinder wall, and 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 blocks from compacted graphite to nickel steel sleeves, to to a gray iron to a to a sleeve in an aluminum block. And so when guys ask me how many runs I can get out of my engine, you know what I try to tell people is, look, you can run it as long as you dare. We like to see them at, at, at 200 quarter-mile runs. Now, the 8-mile bracket racing has become so widespread. You will hear stories all the time of, you know, three, four, six, seven hundred runs or even a 1,000 runs. But 8-mile bracket racing or 8-mile racing period is a lot less uh, brutal to that engine. Years ago, I didn't believe that. 30 years ago, I said, no, it's the burnout. It's the first eighth mile that's so hard on it, the second – I've been doing a lot of eighth mile racing myself, and uh, I took my engine apart. I did 200 and a little over 218 runs in the eighth mile with one of my Camaros last year. Took the motor apart. It looked brand new. And so I've been changing my opinion on that. I, apparently, it's the second half of the run that does a lot of wear. And, uh, I mean, even oil changes, you know, I've, I've always been an advocate for changing the oil in 20 to 30 runs, period. Let's keep clean oil in the thing. And as soon as you start going eighth mile racing, you start noticing this oil is like brand new. So when people start asking about how many runs, you got to ask them, are you talking quarter mile? Are you talking eighth mile? Are you on alcohol? Are you on gasoline? You know, um, and, 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 and engine temperature plays a big difference. I had a guy that just kept 
having trouble and having trouble and got talking to him and he had the, the water temperature. He was running the engine so hot and double and triple entering things that the oil was getting burned up and cooked in a very, very short amount of time. So there's so many factors about when somebody starts telling you how many runs they put on the car as to what type of racing and even even what water temperature or engine temperature or oil temperature they're running the thing at. That makes sense. It does. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. It's all the little details behind the answer. You know, you've got to, you know, you've got to dig to know that, you know, to get, again, we're back to the data to know all the data. What happened? What did you do? How do you run it? it these are things that we deal with here every day is, you know, you got to keep digging, 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 because rarely does that information just come out right up front. So being that we're on a, on a show about piston rings, we ought to talk about some ring technology a little bit because it kind of ties in what we just finished. Um, 35 years ago when we used, you know, just some plasma Molly speed pro rings, you know, and we had stock blocks. I remember the stock 350 010 blocks that we all ran when pretty much everybody ran small blocks. And in 30 runs, the cylinder walls were not straight again. You literally, if you were running them in super stock, which I, I did that in the, in the early eighties was involved in that. You had to pull those motors out every 30 runs and rehone them. If you wanted to be fast. Well, with today's blocks and cylinder walls that are so rigid and so much better, like Nicosil, I mean, you, we've got a customer that ran uh, an ex-NASCAR motor with Nicosil sleeves, five complete bracket racing seasons before we even took it apart. And, um, you know, a good friend of mine, Rick Mann, I called him and I said, hey, what do I do with this Nicosil cylinder wall? He says, look good? Yeah, nothing. Put it back together. Put a set of rings in it. Put it right back together. Don't even own it. Clean it. Put it back exactly. together. And so it really does matter um what the whole configuration is but as far as the ring goes the since we started using total seal rings everything got light years better the quality the material and and every every single thing they treat piston rings like i do my racing i want to know exactly what material it is and i want batch to batch and and i want to know the tension and the radial and the, everything i can know about it i mean i've tried to learn that uh, Going back, the, the two guys that really were, um, you know, imperative in my career, Nolan Palmer and Warren Johnson, the first thing I, I learned from them is they knew every single alloy of whatever they were going to use in any part of their race car. They knew the properties of that alloy. They spouted the numbers off. They talked about 86, 20, 93, 10, 43, 40. I didn't know what that meant then. But once you start learning about every single thing about piston rings, you become so much better about putting the right ring in it and the right clearance and the right end gap and being able to get a lot more, not only power, but longevity out of that engine. I can't imagine going back to just ordering a set of rings out of a catalog ever again. I mean, every single thing I call key for, uh, even if it's for a, a, a very mild bracket car, I still custom order every ring set so I get what I want exactly. And so... For someone who builds engines for stock eliminator cars and super stock cars versus super comp, super gas, top dragster, how different is the strategy for ring package? Uh, because you have rules keeping you uh, restricted in one area, and the other area can do pretty much whatever you want. Um, talk a little bit about the difference in those two different styles. Well, in, in stock eliminator, you're you're stuck with the 078 ring um, groove in the piston and HRA mandates you can't change the ring groove well, and they're not all 078 but predominantly all the, the 
uh, 70s and 80s cars that we build those engines for are. So then you're into ring spacers and you're into gas ported ring spacers and, and and then you can back cut the ring and reduce the tension. So you can get into a lot of different ways of reducing the tension and making the ring lighter and and then, of course, trying to keep the ring groove tight. And then you learn things like in stock eliminator, uh, where we use a ring spacer, we learned the hard way that even though the ring spacer should be, in air quotes, permanent, when it gets just even a thousandths of wear to it, you re-ring it and you don't replace those, you're down on power. So I'm a firm believer when I put rings in a stocker with spacers, we put new spacers in every time. And I like to spend that money, but I, I'd rather have that thing be right because in stock eliminator, it's every two horsepower on my dyno is a hundredth of ET. So you can't give up a couple horsepower by trying to shortcut anything in the ring. And then when you move to super stock where the ring package rules are basically wide open, and now you can start talking about when a guy calls me about a super stock motor, I have to ask him, what do you want to spend on rings? And he's like, what do you mean? Well, we can spend 500 or we can spend 2,500. It's all in what you want. How fast do you want to go? How long do you want it to last? On the high-end rings that we buy from Keith, you know, uh, you could spend that couple thousand dollars, but guess what? They will last three seasons now. So that suddenly is not so bad instead of the guy who wants to pay 500 every year, or seven or $800. But it also depends on the RPM. That's the other thing. If you have some, uh, a long stroke, lower, lower RPM, super stock engine, if you're not going to rev it up there, I haven't seen a big benefit in spending a, a gobs of money on an ultra thin, you know, high-end ring when you're not going to go the, to that RPM. Obviously, on a pro-stock motor, a comp eliminator motor, when you want to use, you know, a 0.7-millimeter ring or something like that or, 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 or thinner, that's got an advantage. But if you're only revving this thing up, if it's some 400 um, Pontiac or, or a Bu- 455 Buick and it never sees 7,000 RPM, I haven't seen there's a gain in getting the ring very thin and very light because it just doesn't see that RPM. Do you agree with that, Keith? It, it, it comes down to friction, like you said, Gary. And, and as you, it, it's that diminishing point of return. And as you do rev it up and go higher and higher and higher, you definitely see the benefits of, of you know, the lighter ring pack. Ring stays sealed better coming through ring reversal, top and bottom dead center. You know, we've got to look at the mass. You know, we're trying to change directions in, you know, microseconds. And, you know, so that ring mass comes into play. Uh, so, yeah, as the RPM goes up, I definitely see the increased benefits uh, you know, with the thinner ring versus a low RPM engine. And then, and, and the frictional losses come into play as well. So as that RPM keeps coming up and up and up and up, the engine becomes more sensitive. So we've got to, you know, we've got to look at the frictional losses, uh, you know, viscosity of oil. There's so many, you know, we'll say fluid dynamic things that are happening in this engine, you know, to, to look at all of these different perspectives. But as Gary stated, the higher you turn it, uh, the lighter that ring pack needs to be. Now, what about uh, you got a 190-mile-per-hour super comp dragster, super gassers. You build engines for top dragsters, which are, you know, they're, they're consistency engines versus max horsepower engines. How do you attack that strategy? Is there a, a plan for building a consistent engine as opposed to a max horsepower engine, if that makes sense? Yeah, um, we definitely try to put something like we'll put more uh, oil ring tension in the blower motors than we'd ever put anything else. And, you know, in the beginning, like everybody, you know, 20 some years ago when you were learning how to do it, you didn't have enough. And 
you had uh, you had more blow by you had you know uh, the blower motors especially would pump oil out and all that as, as we go along and learn what they need what they like and we've got it now down to you know one of our best customers and always a perennial top 10 al kenny running 16s and 620s and he's calling telling me he doesn't get a tablespoon of oil out of his breather tank at the end of a run there's guys that pump a quart out you know so definitely you're going to do something different on the entire ring package on a blown motor as you would a carburetor na engine or a nitrous engine um you know obviously everybody that's listening to this would know on a nitrous or even a blown any kind of a um, power adder type application you're going to open the ring gaps up you're going to go to a a better uh, TNT type ring, you know, for the heat. So all that's different from Supercomp, Supergas. Um, there are people in Supercomp, Supergas style or, you know, bracket style that will try to go to the really trick rings and then they're not going to get the life out of them. And then you'll see them, you know, 150 runs in, they're puffing a little bit of smoke, maybe they lost a mile an hour or two. So there's a fine line there of I want to go as fast as I can go so I can – Everybody wants to go 190 in Supercomp, so you try to use a, a, a thinner ring, a lighter ring tension, and get it right. But at the same time, you know, in my opinion, you need to get 200 runs out of the thing. So there's times when we give up. I mean, I've been on the end where I had ultralight oil rings in, in my own engine, and it haze smoke all, all year long. I don't take it apart to fix it. I learned the next year we addressed the, uh, the oil ring tension. We also addressed the, the piston shape, the barrel, got the rock better, and it dries up, and there's zero smoke, and the power's up, and you can go 190 and make 200 runs. So, yeah, there's definitely every single – that's why I said earlier, every single engine we build, I call Keith, and we go through it. I usually have in my mind what I want already, just need his approval, but we put custom rings in every single engine. I don't hardly use anything off the shelf. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but I just am that fussy and picky about what I want in every single customer application, and that's why I deal with Total Seal. And, and I, you know, and I want to you know, reiterate what Gary just said. And Gary does. I mean, Gary does not buy an off-the-shelf ring kit. We talk about what it is, what the end result is. You know, that we want to get out of that engine and and put that package together. I, I, I'm just a little while ago, I had a gentleman call me, uh, small Chevy. Uh, bought somebody's super stock car. They're going through the engine, and you know what ring pack? And you know you have to kind of. And, and Gary knows this better anyway. You have to know your customer. You've got to know how's this guy going to take care of it. How much life does he get out of it? How much money does he want to spend? What kind of racer is this guy? Is this guy going to the track every weekend? You know, looking for a win. He's you know he's going there loaded, or is he going there? Well, he's more of a casual observer. He wants to go, but you know, and and this gentleman and I speaking today, uh, we talked about 0.7 millimeter stuff. And end of the day, uh, this this what's right for him is our 0.9 0.9 package. It's less expensive. He's not looking for it to be on kill. Uh, he's just getting into this. So, like Gary said, you got to kind of look at you know who they are, what they want, what their what their expectations are out of this particular piece uh and then get them the right part don't just throw them something because you know hey this is the trickiest thing of the week that that may not be the right thing for what this person's doing and and that's the last thing we ever want to be accused of is, is trying to sell something to somebody they don't need you know it, it's always a matter of you know doing that digging doing that you know learning what that customer's 
true needs. You know, you got your wants and you got your needs and then what's right and, and figuring out what's right for that guy. And, and that's one of the things that's always great working with Gary is talking with, you know, who the guy is, what the car is, what it's going to do, what do they expect out of it. And, hey, this is where we ought to be. I think this is the one to go with. And, and, and we're almost always on point together with that. Gary, how many engines come out of your shop in a typical year? I know you're very busy over there. Can you quantify it? It's hard. I would say around 50. Um, we're not... I have to tell a lot of customers this when they call up. If a guy calls me up and says, I need a quote on an engine, I almost stop him right there. We are not the cheapest. We are not the fastest. We are not a production shop. We are a custom racing engine shop. The people who come to me want, just like I do from Key to Total Seal, want a specific thing, and they want it really right and nice. So um, if the people are price shopping or they need an engine in two weeks, I just I, I tell them I can't help them. They need to they need to go on because we take so much time. Every single part is massaged, rubbed, or ordered specifically the way we want it, and it just takes a long time to do that. So you know you hear guys. I mean I've talked to everybody in the industry, and you know I've been in business since '87, and your guys like oh I got 78 inches on the floor. Um, I, you know that that's that's wonderful for you. It's not for me. You know I mean. Uh, many, many, many years ago, we tried to do a lot more, and we had all these engines lined up. And a guy actually came in and looked at all these engines, and he goes, "Well, with all that many, and you got to rebuild all of them. Surely one of them is going to blow up." And I, I looked at him like, "What?" Well, when it was all said and done, one did. And I'm like, huh, "That's kind of a that's kind of right." You started trying to rush stuff, and I hear these stories of guys, you know, putting engines together two to three a week. There's no way you can do everything that at least we do, measuring and recording and do all that and do two to three weeks. Somebody has to be putting stuff together with a, with an air wrench or electric impact to do, uh, you know, to dyno that many, we dyno everything. And so I just can't imagine zinging them together. One to one and a half a week is really keeps you very busy. Yeah, a- absolutely. Like you say, it, it, it takes time. You know, the, the, you know, there are guys that have big shops with lots of people and lots of personnel, but, you know, in, in so many instances, you know, it's hard to keep an eye on all the things that are going on and all the moving, you know, fluid pieces in something like that. So, you know, at a place like Gary's, I know that, as he said, everything's being looked at, every part's being touched, massaged, you know, and, and overseen. And, you know, that's how you've got to keep the quality up. I, I, I have many shops I deal with that, you know, are big shops that move a lot of product and turn out really good stuff. But I also, at the same time, uh, have quite a few customers that have you know tried to get really big, and you know, as Gary stated, they just lost quality control. Everything next thing you know, they, you've got more stuff blowing up than's actually than what is actually going out, and you know more overhead, more expenses, more everything, and and in the big picture, they end up you know they end up losing market share and, and end up you know I have a couple I could tell you that I know lost their businesses over it. Uh, they just let things get too out of control, trying to pump out too much, you know, too many pieces. And they went from putting out a very, very good engine to a really bad piece. And, you know, just, in, you know, hey, you know, if we can get more out, we'll make more money. Well, it backfired. So, you know, that attention to detail is, is you know, synonymous with what we try to do here. Uh, are we perfect every single time? No, absolutely not. We, we make mistakes. We're human. Uh, but we do try to put out a very, very quality product. And, you know, and that takes us a little longer. You know, I'm not able to get everything out the door as fast as we'd like to sometimes, especially, you know, in the current environment. Material supply shortages are out there. Everybody reads about them in the news. Well, let me tell you, folks, this stuff is absolutely real. Uh, you know, there's real problems getting raw material these 
these days, but we're doing our absolute best you know, to maximize everything we're putting out uh, as quickly and timely as possible and with the same quality control as we always have. And, and I know that that's, you know, that that's Gary's you know, thing. It's got to go out right or it's not going out. I've had the same uh, employee assembling every single engine now for 25 years. And, and the people that have raced and used our engines, they know him by name. They know he touched every single bolt. I'm, I, I hone all the blocks and I deck all the blocks and I do the, the cylinder heads and I port the manifolds and Jason puts them together and puts them together and puts them together. That's all he does. He usually has four of them going at one time. So we get hung up. He's waiting on me and anything. He just moves to another one. And, uh, we've been together that long and do a good job. And, and so it's, I kind of make it, I, I give the analogy of this. I mean, you can go to Golden Corral and get a mass produced steak, or you can go to Ruth Chris and get a fine piece. It's going to cost you more. You're going to have to wait a little while while that cook makes it exactly how you want it. But that's the difference in quality. Very interesting. No, I think it is, uh, I think it is great and a great uh, attitude for the drag racer, for the racer at all. Like that's the racer mentality. And to take that through the engine building process through the track and race winning process, that's obviously why you've been successful, both on the track and in the shop, because of the mentality. Now, I will ask you a little bit later on in the show about some advice to the next generation. I just want to put that out there so you start thinking about it. Uh, Keith, get ready with some final questions for Gary. I got to ask you about your driving this year. I know that we stood on a stage after Brainerd. You picked up a win out there. Not, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six wins out there at Brainerd, it appears. And uh, you took over the points lead. Where are you standing in the championship uh, saga right now not to timestamp the show if you're listening in the future you got to go figure out what happened but tell us about your championship hopes in super comp in 2021 well let me let me tell you that i started out this year and I, for the first time ever in 30 30 or 31 consecutive years around super comp i told everybody i'm not running for points i'm not going to run the full season i'm not going to run the full schedule um i've you know i'll be 60 next year in february I'm like, you know what? I want to go have some fun and run my Camaro at some of these big money bracket races. So the first half of the year till mid late July, all I did was go to those bracket races and, and run my Camaro. And the thing about that is that level of competition is so stout. I mean, you can be double Oh three dead on three and lose the round. So it, it forced me if I wanted to be competitive and I, I am very competitive. I wanted to win. So it forced me to make myself better. I wish I'd have done this 20 years ago because I stepped up my game and I, I really honed in on getting those double O reaction times and making my car that good. And I, I, I didn't win one, but I got down to three cars, four cars, eight cars at several of them and was definitely where I wanted to be. So when late July came around and we have our um, division races here, 50 miles from my house at Harlem Park, Topeka, there's a double divisional and a Topeka national and a great Bend divisional. And I'll always go to Indy. I've been very fortunate. I won my first ever national event there in 94. I won it again in 22 years later. Uh, you know, I will always go to Indy. That's the magic place of, you know, that's whatever. So I said, well, I'm going to run from the end of July through Indy. Then I'll go back to bracket racing. Well, what do you know? The enhanced learning driving experience made me better at both ends. And uh, I drove like I was 20 or 30 again, and 
I won the Great Bend Divisional, and I won the Brainerd National Bend. And the next thing I know, I had not even looked at points. I had no concern with points. And somebody calls and says, hey, you're leading the world. And I'm like, oh, crap. Now you got to go chase him. Right? Yes. Now you got to go do that. And I, I didn't want to do that. It's so much time off work. It's so much stress. And then you start worrying about who's doing what and when and what. And so ever since then, of course, now I've got nothing but I've ran like five races. And I think every single event I've ran a former world champ or, or indie champ or something. And I've had no luck. And so I've slid down to um, third or fourth. I mean, me and Ray Miller, Ray Ray Miller are tied. And uh, just a week ago today, we were tied for first. And now we're both second, third or third and fourth by now. Um, I am going to Dallas tomorrow for the national event. Um, if I was to win the national event there, I would go back up. I don't know if I would take over the lead because I think uh, Christopher Dodd, the reigning world champ, is winning rounds today in Dallas, the Houston makeup. So Bob pros won over the weekend, but I'm not done. I'm not out of it. I have two more nationals. Uh, so I'll see how I do at Dallas and then decide if I'm going to go to another one. Um, unlike when you're much younger and you've never done it and you, that's all you can think of. Um, now it would just be nice if it happened. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. But at the same time, I'm not going to walk away and go, oh, I'm not, I don't want to finish, you know? So yes. I'll go do it and we'll see how it turns out. Excellent. No, I love it. I love it. We got the table set uh, on hidden horsepower. People are going to have to go check and see what the results are. Key final questions for Gary Sinnott. Your thoughts? Well, you, you, Gary's kind of already answered it because, you know, uh, where I was going to go, and, and, and he's, he's, you know, we've talked you know, a lot about rings and a lot about engines. And, and my question for Gary was, hey, what happened to going not chasing the, you know, the Supercom championship? Because we yeah. talked about it a lot in the earlier part of the year and how much he was enjoying going to the brackets and, you know, hadn't done that in so long. And, you know, like you say, next thing you know, he's on the points lead and he's chasing her down. <laughs> Simple as that. Uh, but hey, yep. you, the world calls. You got to answer. That's just the way it is. The world calls. You have to answer. All right, Gary. We like to imagine that there are some young go-getter, future machinist, engine builders out there who listen to Hidden Horsepower because they're interested. And uh, you know, I like to try to extract a little advice for the next generation. Like if you're talking to young young Gary, your own self, like what would you say to those folks out there? It's kind of a benchmark here on Hidden Horsepower to try to gain a little advice, a little knowledge, a little something that'll get them a leg up on the competition when they're out there in the world trying to get a job in a field that they love, doing the right thing. We've heard, uh, you know, keep your keep your mouth shut so no one hears how dumb you are. <laughs> we, we've heard we've heard so many different uh, pieces of advice. What do you got to say to the next generation of engine builders and machinists out there? Well, um, I can tell you that this isn't going to be well-liked and accepted by everybody I'm about to say, but I've hired several employees that came out of uh, schools that they paid a good bit of money to to learn the, the trade, and they and, and I've had several interviews, and they walk through the door, and immediately they're almost, I'm not going to say, they're almost arrogant, but they're like, I can do everything. I know it all. I went to the school. I learned everything. Yep, I learned how to hone A block. I learned how to do a valve job. I learned, and when I've hired them, I've had to completely retrain them. Um, and they, they're twenty-five or $50,000 in debt. So in my humble opinion, if I was a young man, and this is how I did it, but this is how I feel like it. 
go get a job as a parts washer. We've hired dozens of them. They last a year or two. Get a job as a parts washer. And even if you get paid minimum wage, at least you're not paying a fee. Work in that shop. Listen. Pay attention. Ask questions. Learn and move up. This is the old traditional way for the last two to three hundred years. You didn't be, walk in the door one day and become a blacksmith or a watchmaker. You started as an apprentice. And in fact, if I had to do it all over again, and I basically did do this, I'd work for free so I could learn and not have to at least pay somebody. I had no money. I worked for hundred dollars a week for Norman Palmer. But the thing I learned from Norman Palmer, Billy Graham, and Warren Johnson wasn't. This is how you hone a block, or this is how you run a mill, or this is how you run a lathe. What I learned from them that you cannot learn at school was the way they thought. That's been the single biggest thing in my entire life is to look at something and study it and say, how does that work, and how can I make that better? What's really going on there? Not what a magazine article tells you. Not what some teacher in school told you. Think about it. Actually study it and dissect it. Wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it, and then in the old days, go read a book, but now go online, Google, find out about everything you can find about how that's man made, manufactured materials, and study that and work up through the, the, the ranks, so to speak, and that's how you'll become a master craftsman. You can't just go write a check for it and have somebody give it to you in six months. Wow. Incredible. Great episode. Gary, this was awesome. Uh, I wish you luck in your non-world championship, world championship chase. And uh, so much great knowledge. And right at the end, like I thought you really brought it home right there. That was amazing. Uh, I wish you good luck. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Keith, say goodbye to Gary. I, I don't think it gets better than that. No, no, it really doesn't. I want to kind of reiterate on one of the things that Gary said, you know, having been very fortunate working for Total Steel and being able to travel uh, to other countries, you know, the apprenticeship programs that are, you know, that are in the other countries that you rarely, rarely see here anymore uh, are something that, you know, that we need to, uh, you know, to really adopt and readdress. I mean, you remember back in the old days, you know, you had an apprentice plumber, an apprentice electrician, you know, an apprentice machinist. When did you hear anybody ever say that anymore, that you've gone under an apprenticeship? You know, you're going to learn that trade from someone like Gary that's been doing this for decades and decades, and then, you know, work out to become a, the journeyman and then the master electrician. Uh, this is something that, you know, I've always said, and I will continue to say, cause, you know, it, it just, this, this is something that's sorely missing out there in the trades, you know, is, is bringing these guys under the wing and, and teaching them and letting them, you know, you know, show them what you know, share that knowledge. We always talk about, you know, you know, grumpy and smoky and all these guys, you know, God, you got to write all that down. You got to put it in a book, you know, because otherwise that information is going to be lost to the ages. And, and that's the honest truth. You think of all the things that Gary knows and all the things that Gary can share with somebody to pass that knowledge on and keep that alive for, you know, for eternity. It's, it's an important thing. And it's something I think that's missing out there. Gary, anything to add there? I was just going to ask, how did you how did you become the master of your craft? Me? Yourself. So, <laughs> hasn't yeah. happened yet. <laughs> Still working. No, it has. It hasn't. Listen, look, how much how much higher can you go in the automotive announcing world? Um, whatever you call yourself. Sure. There's not much more you can go unless you're going to do the Indy 500 on NBC or something, right? Right. So, so how did you get where you're at today? You started. 
in your basement, ground roots, and worked your way through. You didn't go to a school to learn this, correct? No. I mean, I did get a communications degree from community college, but as soon as I got that, uh, I went and got a job at a local radio station, and that's where 99% of the learning happened. And honestly, you mentioned exactly. you mentioned those schools. They have them for broadcasting as well. And uh, in the broadcasting world, probably much more so than the, the machining world, but in the broadcasting world, it was... Uh, really a hey work in the world of sports you want to be next to your favorite athlete doing a job yeah come to us we'll teach you how to do it and maybe they would get you in a, a, a an apprenticeship which would be called an internship in radio um, but once I got the radio job that was it I was doing I was working I was holding the microphone I, of course I was a track announcer before any of that stuff and it really what drove it was passion like this is what I wanted to do I wanted to be good at it eventually somewhere along the line there would be money uh, I'm not destroying my body like my dad did as a cement mason who went through that whole uh, apprentice journeyman master thing that you were talking about with masonry but it destroyed his body the guy had like eight hernias over his life you know picking up block that kind of stuff and he always told me the stories like joe you know use your mind don't use your body because look at what happened to me and so i overlearned the lesson and now i just talk and it's worked out pretty well <laughs> but that's the same with keith the same thing keith you didn't go to you didn't you didn't start out out of high school go i'm going to be a piston ring engineer and go to a school you also had a, a journey like we've all had and learned and and are still learning every day like we all are, correct? Absolutely, 100%. I grew up in a, you know, a racing household uh, in Illinois, you know, grew up around that stuff. My dad was you know, super into it, so that made me into it. And, and as Gary said, you, know, you, you, just, you, got, you sought out jobs and people that you could learn from and continue to grow and you know, spent many, many years doing that. And, and as, as Gary said, you know, when I first came to work for Total Seal, I didn't know anything about piston rings. Uh, you know, great guy, Jim Edwards, handed me a couple of books. Uh, when I first started here, he goes, here, read these, and started there. And then just, you know, as we all said, just started trying to gobble up all the information that I could, material technologies, coding technologies, tribology, you know, learning about lubrication, just, you know, trying to absorb and, and, and use that. And at the same time, you know, and it's something that, you know, I'll call a gift in the DNA uh, from my father, my mother, you know, the ability to look at something and understand how it works. You know, some people have that, some people don't. Uh, you can look at it and you can form that picture in your mind and go, yeah, no, no, I get that. And now how do I make that better? And, you know, and studying and learning that and having, you know, being very blessed to have that, you know, that kind of a gift. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of the story and, and always trying to push it to make it better. How do we, how do we do this better? Because nobody ever comes at us and asks us for something less. How about Gary? Exactly. Take, how about Gary taking over the show, Keith? Like he's asking us questions. That hasn't happened. I love before. it. Well, I, I love it. <laughs> I got to tell you, I know, I know we're running along and you can cut us out, but you guys are going to enjoy this. The part I was talking about learning is when I went to work for Norman Palmer and he just won the world championship in comp. He won it with a front-engine dragster. Why? Well, he found a class that had a, a softer index at the time, and it was – so he built – this is the this is the epitome of the guy that thinks outside the box, right? He said, I'm going to use a four-cylinder Datsun engine, but it needs a bigger bore. So he bored the block out way bigger and then furnace-raised new sleeves in the block. And then built his own sheet metal manifold, carburetors, all that, right? So it made a little four-cylinder – engine and then he said but it needs to be a stick shift how am i going to shift 
a manual transmission between my legs. The front engine dragster was because it would be lighter than a rear engine model. So then what did he do? He figured out you could take that Doug Nash four or five speed and flip it upside down. It doesn't care what direction it runs. So he flipped it upside down, therefore putting the shifter on the right side instead of on the left side so he could use his right hand to shift. Now it's in the way of the butterfly steering wheel. How do we get around that? Cut that half off. Don't need it. <laughs> We've got a butterfly wheel. We just need one <laughs> left hand. We're only using the left hand. So he had a one-sided butterfly steering wheel. Now we need the car to be light. Now this is all before I came along, but I, this is how I got, I got to learn how to think, right? He, he, him and, and WJ, same thought process. So he's like, how can we make this car lighter? Well, we don't need a fuel pump. What do you mean you don't need a fuel pump? We'll just pressurize the gas tank. So as a crewman, my job became to take the air tank, and there was a Schrader valve in the top of the gas tank in the nose of the dragster where it needed weight to not wheelie. And when he's at the hold line, I aired up the gas tank till I had seven pounds. And it was big enough, he'd done the math, to hold that seven pounds of pressure through the finish line. So we had no fuel pump. And he won the world championship of this car in 1980. And by 81, when we're working together, NHRA didn't have a meeting back then. They just decided to hit your index. So when we won the Mile High Nationals and go 70 under, wham, Monday morning, you lost two tenths. So, and I wasn't there when he built the next generation, which was a year later. He just made it a six-cylinder version as a new class. Instead of instead of uh, D-Econo Dragster, now it's an E-Econo Dragster. Same engine, two cylinders more all those tricks and NHRA said hey you can't have a one-sided steering wheel what do you mean I can't nope got to have two butterflies okay he makes it where it hinges and it has nothing but a, a an o-ring around the back side to keep the steering wheel v'd out he would leave it in the out position when it's in the stage lanes and tech inspection he'd do the burnout back up and right before he would stage he would fold it and it folded both flat into his left hand so he could shift the shifter <laughs> How, when you're 18 years old, you're working for a guy with a mind like that? Right. Do you not learn to think those ways? To think those ways. Exactly. To Com analyze. Completely outside of the box. Yeah. Finding the gray area in everything. That's incredible. Well, and your comments. And then, and then Go a, ahead. Few, a few years later, a few years later, I'm working for Warren Johnson, and he thinks exactly the same way. He was flying to Detroit or to Flint, Michigan, and scraping sand away on the head. So we didn't have to weld the heads like Rare Morrison. We could just port them. Then we could move the lifter over. Then we could move the cam lobe over. Then we could put Jessel rockers on it and wonder why that year we go 190 and everybody else can only go 186. Awesome. Those are the people. Absolutely that, awesome. They didn't, those people didn't teach me how to build an engine. They taught me how to think about building an engine or a race car or stuff even in super comp that I have today. Now, my super comp dragster that nobody else has or doesn't have the exact idea or even the changes that I make week to week or year to year to make my dragster better than the other people I race. Can you talk about that, or is that top secret? Certain stuff. Mm, I can talk about it, but I mean, like, I'm not going to give you specifics. Well, there's one innovation that I thought was pretty cool, and you won the world uh, a couple of years ago, and nobody was uh, doing it. And now other people are doing it, and you were telling me about it in Indy, and uh, you know, I don't know how public that is. You know about how many different gears there are. Oh yeah, so high gear, high gear. Well, I call high gear only, but it's just leaving in high gear. That's been around since uh, actually John Spar did it when he when he owned B and M in the eighties. 
he did it because he had a blown dragster go 200 mile an hour and he couldn't make it um leave the starting line and go on to stop and do all that so he did it but he didn't have he had some success but not a lot and then a couple other people tried it but it was in 2006 where i had enough horsepower that my car was violent leaving and i needed to calm it down and i came up with a the idea of a split throttle stop and I tried some other stuff and I finally just said I just leave it in high gear so I started leaving in high gear and nobody knew it and uh, the first year I did it it was after the week after Indy and I struggled with it a little bit the very first race I got to the final round I just got beat and then by the end of the year at the world finals I won Pomona that way I kept it a secret and nobody really knew it and I won the world championship with it in 2010 and in 11 and then in 2012, my good customer, Al Kenny, who was running Super Comp, I'll never forget, he was unloading an engine. And he says, I got a question for you. He said, hmm, you suppose a guy could get up a light on a four-tenths pro tree if he left in high gear? <laughs> and, of course, two world champions just currently, I'm, I'm smiling. He goes, that's what I thought. So he did it, and he won the world championship in 2012. So the high gear car won in three, year, three consecutive years, 10, 11, and 12. And then the problem, though, and the reason I've gone away from it now is that it does very well in most most applications, but under certain track preps, it will actually stick the tire and the car won't move. Um, I mean, it does, but you'll have a 40 or 50 light and you don't know why. I let go on time. I'm pretty sure I let go on time. You could put a camera on it or any kind of recording, but it just did not have enough torque, even with as much power as I got to actually move it and have a double O or a team line. So in the heat of the summer, I could do very well. And I won a lot of, of hot summer divisionals and stuff or, or national events in the summer, but in the spring and fall, it wasn't good. I finally, I, I went back and forth for several years and I finally said, you know, it was actually Mike Furter that called me one day and said, and you know how, how he could be, he's like, stand it. Would you quit screwing around, put your car back in low gear and just race like everybody else. You'll still be able to beat him. So, <laughs> I, I've done that, and I have a really good, good old a really good combination in low gear right now. You know, um, you, you can deal with it in other ways. You just had to again think outside the box and and figure out how to do it in a different manner. But there's still people. Um, I can't name names. There's still people that run high gear today. A really good friend of mine won the Topeka Divisional in high, and and another guy. You know, there's they're still out there. And there's people still trying, but it's not consistently good. Um, I can't answer why when I tell you it was good in 10 and 11 and 12, maybe it was track prep back then. Maybe when you had a 40 or 50 light, those particular rounds you got by and then you don't, you can't get by with that today. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but there's been a lot of, um, a lot of innovations over the years that, that I and we and people have done and some work. And I mean, um, there's a top dragster that won the world championship, believe it in, in high in top dragster not very long ago. So it's still out there and around and it still works, but it, it definitely takes a lot of, um, a lot of other items. You got to work on the car to make it work. That's what I'm saying. Got it. Well, I just appreciated the, uh, innovation to go with something that others weren't using to gain an advantage and win a couple of world championships. Like to me, that's what it's all about. Gary, great job. Really appreciate you on hidden horsepower. This has been one of my favorite episodes, just so much information, some stories, uh, details, engines, driving. I absolutely love it. I thank you for coming on the show. Wish you good luck for the rest of the raising season. And, uh, and thank you for being on hidden horsepower. Sure. Thanks for having me. Gary Stinnett with us here 
on Hidden Horsepower. Keith, how great was that? I was awesome. I, I knew it would be. Uh, Gary's such a great guy. He's got so much knowledge, so many great stories. Uh, you know, grew up like a lot of us did. You know, uh, you know, figured this stuff out just you know working on it, and doing it, and being around the right people. Uh, I knew it was going to be great. I really, really appreciate him taking the time. Yes, and a new quote for our great quotes of Hidden Horsepower. I think the leader for all time will be "You can't tune it up if you blew it up" by Warren Johnson. But this one related through. Gary Stinnett from Warren Johnson, you can be a machine operator or you can be a machinist. And to me, that is uh, very today. You can choose to be the guy plugging in the numbers like George Jetson or Homer Simpson pressing those buttons, or you could be somebody who's actually driving the machine. The way he described that to me was awesome. I could, uh, I could visualize exactly what he was saying. 100%. Amazing stuff. Keith, for people who are interested, they want to get a hold of you and uh, so many complimentary things Gary said about uh, custom ring packages for whatever the specific need is. That's what we've been saying the whole time. If you've got a turbo LS, if you want to drive on the street with 1,200 horsepower, if you want to build a super comp engine, there's a different package. Uh, and it starts out with a call to total seal. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. Reach out, reach out to us at totalseal.com. Myself and all the other guys' emails are on there. Uh, just you know, pick one of us. You know, reach out, ask your questions, uh, give us a call. The eight hundred number is eight hundred eight seven four two seven five three. We welcome your phone calls. Just reach out, as we've said in the past, and as Gary said in this, uh, you know, in, in, in today's hidden horsepower, uh, it's all about the custom. It's all about making it specific and you know, and right for what you're doing. And maybe we have a box kit that is the right thing for what you're doing. A lot of people use them. A lot of people love them. Uh, but call us. You know, again, back to make us your first call, not your last, to make sure you're getting the right part for what you're doing. That's It's so important. It only takes a little bit of time to assure that you're getting exactly the right package for your application. Excellent. Keith, great job as usual. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and, and, and making all this happen. Yes, sir. He's Keith Jones, the Director of Technical Sales at Total Seal Piston Rings. I'm Joe Costello. You can follow me at WFO Joe on Instagram and Twitter. How about those great things Gary Sinnott said? Unbelievable. Also, I do a podcast called WFO Radio. You'll see me out there on the NHRA Drag Racing Series Tour. And be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. And check us out on one of the Total Seal Trackside Tech Talks. We'll be doing stuff at PRI as well. And we'll see you next time on the next edition of Hidden Horsepower presented by Total Seal.